Well, I'm so privileged to be with you on this Palm Sunday. A special thank you to my friend and brother KP Pass for allowing me this honor and thanks to Hannah and Steve Tucker for handling uh, sound and video for us for this. Uh, now most of us in the West are familiar with the events of Palm Sunday and even if you don't go to church on a regular basis you're familiar um, with the events surrounding the Easter season. Um, and though many, has changed, many things have changed over the years, the heart of man remains unchanged. I don't know if you've ever stopped to think about this before, but King Solomon, the smartest man who ever lived besides our Lord, uh, wrote these words, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. And I point this out because what happened this morning that we're going to look at in Judea 2,000 plus years ago is still occurring today, not only in our, in our world, but also in our churches as well. Like the people of Jesus' day, so many people are so close and yet so far. Now this morning we're in Matthew's Gospel. If you have your Bible, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 21. And you can turn there if you like. We're going to put it up on the screen for you in a bit as well to help you. Um, but we're trying to obey our civic leaders and our government leaders uh, by meeting again by social media and not in person. And we get this, by the way, from Romans 13. There are different people who say different things. Uh, about this, it amazes how many people amazes me how many people claim that they're obeying God when they directly disobey what He has told us in His Word. But that's a different message for a different time. So Matthew chapter uh, twenty-one, beginning at verse one, says this: And they approached Jerusalem. They came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Now let me pause here for a minute and give you a map uh, of how Jesus was uh, coming in to the city. We call this the triumphal entry. And it's very easy for us to miss a very important prophetic reference at this point. The prophet Ezekiel tells us of the glory of God leaving the temple in Israel. Now, if you recall the, your history, as Israel left Egypt, one of the things that happened is the glory of God went over the tabernacle, both by smoke in, in the daytime and a fire at night. That glory remained over Solomon's temple when it was in Israel. And that reference is found in Ezekiel 8 through 11. Now, God had been putting up with the empty worship of his chosen people for centuries. He had been pleading with them to return to their trust in him with their whole heart, and they did not. So, in uh, 722 B.C., the uh, northern tribes of Israel went into the Assyrian captivity. Then, in 605 B.C., the southern tribes uh, began their Babylonian captivity. It took a number of years to do this. And then around 586 B.C., the glory of God, the Shekinah glory of God, finally left the temple altogether. And it did this by moving, first of all, to the eastern gate 
of the temple, went out that eastern gate, and went across the Mount of Olives towards Bethphage, and at that point went up into heaven according to this reference in Ezekiel. And the glory of God left Israel at that point. Now, it's amazing, we don't stop to think about this, but it's amazing that with the triumphal entry, if you follow that map, the glory of God was returning to Israel in the person of Jesus Christ, and Israel never recognized it. As a matter of fact, um, Luke records for us, as they approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it. This is all part of that entry. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You see, if you miss Jesus, you miss it all. And some people today are exactly like the people in Jerusalem 2,000 plus years ago. You're religious. You participate in the major religious holidays and celebrations. You have an inkling of the truth. You are so very close and yet so very far. And the even you that Luke talks about refers to you. Not only to the people of that day, but it refers to you as well. Because you're close, but if you miss Jesus, if you don't recognize who he is, you miss it all. A number of years ago, there's a story of three young men who were sitting on the rim of the Grand Canyon. And these young men were daredevils, and they were very athletic, and they were discussing together... Um, you know, who could get the closest, if they, if they ran and jumped, who could get the closest to the other rim of the cannon, canyon? And they decided to, to try that. And the first man ran, and he jumped, and he did quite well. He made it about 12 feet before falling to the valley below. The second young man did a little bit better. He made it 12 feet, 15 inches before he fell to the canyon floor. And the third young man, he was really athletic. He made it 14 feet before following the 6,093 vertical feet to the floor. So ultimately, they all jumped the same amount, 6,693 feet. But their own athletic abilities really meant Nothing. Some of you are counting on your religious abilities to jump a canyon that you cannot jump. You're convinced that you can make it on your own to God, that you're good enough or that you know enough, and you're trying to pass that gulf that separates you from God. And you know, you just know that you're better than other people. You know that you're a good person. You are trying to jump a divide that you will never successfully hurdle. Isaiah, the Old Testament prophet, says this, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. 
Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Now that word iniquity means that a person knows something is right. But they choose to question it. They choose to twist it. In another place Isaiah says that they call good evil and evil good. That's what iniquity means. And sin simply means to miss the mark. To fall short of God's standards. Some of you are living in known sin. And you're wondering why God is not answering your prayers. Well, here it is. You have this sin that hides its face from you. You have no intention of addressing that sin. You expect God to simply overlook it. And that's why we need Christ. That's why you need Christ. And that's why I need Christ. Because we can't do it on our own. Right now, some of you are so, so very close. Please don't be like the people in Jerusalem on this first Palm Sunday and underestimate who Jesus is. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, we're back in Matthew, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt. Untie her and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And Matthew now is about to explain what is happening here from the prophet Zechariah. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you gentle, riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now you may not know this, but in the Old Testament there are over 300 references to Jesus. 300 prophecies about Jesus Christ. Someone once said that the Old Testament predicts what the New Testament records. And Jesus fulfilled all of the prophecies concerning him. Now, just so that you understand what we're talking about here, Peter Stoner, a statistician, did a study once, and he said if eight of the prophecies, only eight of the prophecies were fulfilled, and Jesus fulfilled all 300, but if only eight were fulfilled, he said the chances of eight of these prophecies coming true in one person would be one to tenth in the seventeenth power. Just eight. Now, just so that you get a picture of what this is, because I can't imagine that those type of numbers. One with 17 zeros behind it. Stoner says it would be equal to taking the state of Texas, filling it two feet deep in silver dollars, and on one of those silver dollars, with a sharpie so that you can't feel it, marking an X and hiding it in that two feet deep pile that covers the entire state of Texas. And then he said, if you take a man <coughs> and blindfold him, put him in an airplane, and let him fly over the state of Texas, and whenever he feels like it, he could jump out of that airplane and parachute down to the ground, when he lands, he would reach in to that two feet deep pile of Texas, wherever he chose to land. 
and pull that one coin marked with an X out of that pile. That's one to ten in the 17th power. And that's just eight of the prophecies being fulfilled. Jesus fulfills all 300. And that should make you stop and think about what you think about Jesus. How you evaluate him. And I suspect that many of us would be like the people in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago and our expectations of Jesus would be way too small. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed him. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on him for Jesus to sit on, excuse me, on the, on the donkeys to, for him to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from trees and spread them. On the road. Now, this is the scene that we're familiar with on Palm Sunday. But let's look at it for a minute in its historical setting. The laying of their cloaks on the road for Jesus to come submitted their willingness to submit to this king. Yes, we'll obey you. Yes, we will follow you. We will submit to you. And they did the right thing on this occasion. But a few days later, their submission would return to rebellion when their king did not do what they wanted him to do. 2,100 years later, and we still haven't changed on this. How many people pledge their submission to Jesus but do not change? Because Jesus doesn't meet their expectation. He doesn't want to do what they expected him to do. And their cry today is, not my king. Many who pledge submission to Jesus, like the people in this crowd, would walk away from him when their submission was no longer convenient. They came to faith expecting Jesus to serve them. But they had no desire to serve him. Now the palm branches are totally different. When a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who the Jews called Antiochus Epiphanes, which means the madman, when he came to power, he was on his way to Egypt to take over Egypt, and he couldn't do it, and he was angry, and he turned his anger back towards Jerusalem. And we're told that he does that something like 60,000 men, women, and children were crucified, killed. And it began a reign of terror that lasted for decades, and then God raised up a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus in 164 B.C. to end Antiochus's bloody rule. And the people celebrated Judas Maccabeus by cutting down palm branches and placing them before him, recognizing that he was their great liberator. 
And so I have to wonder if those who are doing this on this occasion are, are doing the exact same thing with Jesus. They're expecting a great military leader to come and to free them from Roman oppression. And yes, like many today, they wanted Jesus, but they wanted him on their terms. Scripture says the crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens. Now, these words come to us from Psalms 108, a psalm that expresses the Jewish longing for their Messiah to come. Hosanna is a term of praise. It's a term invoking God to act on their behalf, to God to intervene in their need. It's a cry, save now. You know, we're facing the COVID virus, and that's why we're only on social media today. And many of us are very concerned about this, and we're crying out to God, just like these people were crying out, and they wanted him to do it now, today, immediately. And many people who praise God on Sunday grumble about him on Monday because he didn't step in and do what they wanted him to do. They thought he should do. They demanded that he do. And yes, that term demanded, we often do that, don't we? Our prayers many times are really demands. And when God doesn't meet our demands the way we thought he should have met our demands, we say, I don't want anything to do with you. Now, we call it asking, but nine times out of ten, our ask is more of an expectation rather than a humble request. I think we think of our prayer sometimes as a way simply to prime the problem. We'll praise God because if we praise Him, He's going to have to do what we say. If we thank Him before, He does it. He's going to have to do what we say. It's kind of like priming the pump. We're all for that. And that's what these people were doing here. They recognize him as the son of David. This shows their expectation that he was going to be a military leader. David was the greatest military king of Israel. So these people, it appears, are expecting a coup. They're expecting God to overthrow Rome and restore the Davidic throne and the Davidic line to Israel. But notice this, not only do they recognize him as the son of David, but they recognize him as coming in the name of the Lord. So at this point, the people are recognizing that Jesus comes with the authority of God on his side. Now they give lip service to this. They believe that he's the chosen one. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You're God's Messiah. But that lip service means nothing without life service. And because their faith only went as deep as their lips, a very few short days later, these same people, some of these same people would be crying, crucify him, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. 
Now, in the cultural context of that day, the people are doing so much more than calling for the condemnation of Jesus. When they say, we have no king but Caesar, they're saying, we don't need God. We've got this. And this is an utter rejection of God's rule over their life. And we miss that. And whether we like it or not, you need to understand this, when a person rejects Jesus, they reject God. I was watching an interview where one of the front-running Democrats was for the office of president was angrily grilling a man from my alma mater, Wheaton College, because the man wrote a thing saying that Jesus was the only way to God, and this candidate was livid about this. And he insisted that the Wheaton graduate recant this statement. Now, he never bothered to stop and ask if Muslims believe that the only way to God is through Muhammad. For some reason, that wasn't a problem for him. The only problem was that people would believe that Jesus was the only way to God. And he was just purple-faced, angry. I was surprised watching this trial that was going on. And he finally gave up when the man wouldn't recant and said he won't get my vote for this position that he was seeking. Now that is what these people who were beginning to cry on this Palm Sunday, Hosanna, expecting Jesus to come and do it their way, why they would be crying, crucify him, Caesar's all we need, when he wouldn't do it their way. It's amazing how many people loud Jesus as Lord if they think it will benefit them. But then they denigrate him as soon as he doesn't do it their way. They seem so close with their words, but they are so far in their hearts. And when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. And they asked, who is this? You know, wherever Jesus goes, he creates a stir. You shouldn't be surprised at that. Some of you feel that in your own heart. That may be why you don't go to church. You feel the stir, but you don't want to respond. And so you decide, if, well, I don't know and I don't go. I don't have to respond. That describes you. Let me warn you. The Bible says that there's coming a day when every one of us is going to stand before God and it doesn't matter whether you believe that or not. The story is told of a little monkey by the name of Cheeky and Cheeky had this lake that he wanted to swim in so bad, the water looked so inviting and so cool and so refreshing, but his parents wouldn't let him go to this lake because they warned him of crocodiles that lived in the lake. And they said, these crocodiles love to eat little monkeys. But that lake was so inviting to this little monkey that one day he kind of 
snuck off on his own, hoping that he would get to that lake and be able to swim in it. And on the way towards that lake, he crossed paths with an owl. And he said, Mr. Owl, he said, have you ever heard of crocodiles? And the owl said, cheeky crocodiles exist, and they love to eat little monkeys, and you don't want to go to that lake because crocodiles live in that lake, and they love to eat little monkeys. And Cheeky just screamed, crocodiles do not exist. Crocodiles do not exist. And he continued on his way. And while he was going to the lake, he passed a zebra who he asked the same question to, and the zebra gave him the same answer. And he passed a giraffe, and he passed other animals who kept warning him about crocodiles. And each time, he would put his hands over his ears, and he would rush off, and he'd say, crocodiles do not exist. Crocodiles do not exist. And eventually, Cheeky came to the serpent. And he said, Mr. Serpent, he said, have you ever heard of a thing called a crocodile? And the serpent said, Cheeky, there's no such thing as crocodiles. That's a story that's made up to control little monkeys and to keep them from having fun. And with that message, Cheeky's eyes lit up. And he ran off screaming, I knew it, I knew it, crocodiles do not exist. (coughs) And he ran to the lake. And that lake was all he expected it to be. The water was cool and refreshing, and he was having a grand time splashing in it and swimming and just having a good time, and all of a sudden there was a splash. And Cheeky the monkey was gone. And as that crocodile swam away, the serpent smiled when he heard the crocodile say, Cheeky, the monkey, does not exist. Cheeky, the monkey, does not exist. Now, some of you listening today or watching today, you're looking for reasons to deny that God exists. And it's not because the evidence is not there. It's because you want to have things your own way. You think you know better than him. Here's what you need to know. If the scriptures are true, and I believe that they are, there's a place in Romans where it tells us that one day we're going to stand before God, and when we stand before him, we're going to stand before him, and this is unique to the human condition. We are going to stand him without excuse. No excuses. You say, I didn't believe in you because I didn't have enough evidence. That's an excuse. It won't stand. Then what will we say? Right now, like the people in Jerusalem that first Palm Sunday, there's a stir in your heart. And the question is, Who is he? Who is he? And if your answer is like the populace of Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, your ultimate behavior will be like their subsequent behavior. You will simply turn away recognizing him as a good, moral, religious teacher, one among many. 
and you will miss him as the only one who has the ability to rescue you. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and they asked, who is this? And then they got the wrong answer to that question. The crowd answers, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. They were so very close. They recognized him as a man and missed him as God's anointed, their Messiah. C.S. Lewis, an apologist of days gone by, once wrote of Christ, I am saying here, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish things that people often say about him, speaking of Jesus. Which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of thing that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open for us. He did not intend to. They were so close, so close, but so far. How about you? Where do you stand this morning? Are you ready to accept Jesus as Lord, or will you persist in wanting him merely as legend? Will you accept him as Savior, or will you relegate him merely as a prophet from Nazareth whose life ended on a cross? He did die on a cross. He died for you, and he died for me. He's the only person that was born with the purpose of dying. Someone once said, He came to die on a cross of wood, though he made the hill on which it stood. So he did die on that cross, but he rose three days later. And we have numerous eyewitness reports to that fact, both biblical and non-biblical reports. In fact, when you think of it, we wouldn't even have a Bible today. At least we wouldn't have a New Testament. If it weren't for this event, the resurrection of Christ, that took place in history, and I'm sure that KP is going to speak on that next week, so I'll not steal that thunder. But today you have a choice. You can decide for him, 
and accept the evidence or you can turn away from the evidence and decide against him. Now is the time of decision. And you need to decide. And not to decide, it's to decide. The crowd found that out. Those who were pledging allegiance to him as king on this first Palm Sunday, who thought he was going to rule Jerusalem the way they wanted him to rule Jerusalem, just a few days later would turn against him and they would cry out, let his blood be on us and on our children. Don't miss that. Your decision today will have an impact on your children's decision tomorrow or your grandchildren's decision. Rejection of Christ is not a decision that impacts you alone. Acceptance of Christ is not a decision that impacts you alone. You can spit at him and call him a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So close, so close, yet so far. And unless you recognize Jesus as the Son of God, the one who came to heaven, to love you and to forgive you, to die for you. And rise again on the third day. You'll be like Cheeky the monkey. Doesn't happen, doesn't happen, doesn't happen until you stand without excuse and judgment. And whether you realize it or not, whether you like it or not, there's coming a day when every one of us will stand before the throne of God. And when we do, you will face him either as your savior or as your righteous judge. Which will it be for you? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for preserving this story for us from the life of Jesus through the pen of Matthew. And Lord, I pray that there are those today who perhaps felt that stir once again. But today will be different. Instead of just going along with the emotions of the moment, they will make that decision and submit to you as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And do it in a way that recognizes your authority to rule, not ours. And may they come to know the peace and the hope and the joy that only you can give. And Lord, particularly in this time when we're facing these uncertain times, we thank you that there's peace that we can know. Even now, 
if we would only recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord and confess that to the glory of the Father and to the salvation of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.